This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of King David's magic mirror. You'll see how asking directions from the guy whose family member you famously killed is maybe not a great idea, and how a nice relaxing bath can protect you from sorcerers trying to kill you. The creature this time is why it's maybe better to get staked as a vampire, so you don't end up transforming into an angry guy with seven goat tails. This is Myths and Legends, episode 261, Mirror Mirror. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week's story comes to us from Jewish folklore, and it tells the story of King David's magic mirror. King David, if you don't know, was the biblical king of Israel and Judah, and he was kind of a big deal. According to the Bible, he killed Goliath, established Jerusalem as the capital, helped to unify the Israelites, and handed things off to his son, King Solomon. According to legend, he had a magic mirror with which he could see everything. We'll catch up with David after he was made king as he's on a hunt in a strange land. King David lowered his bow after shooting the arrow. That deer. Was that deer... the devil? He thought that because he had been shooting at it for most of the morning. And a few times, David's arrows went right through the deer. And this last time the arrow sunk in its side, the deer fell and twitched before cracking up, ripping the arrow out with its deer teeth, calling David a nerd, and then disappearing into a puff of brimstone. So, yeah, something was up with that deer. Then, David looked around. Wait a second. He wasn't in the Israelite kingdoms anymore. He had traveled so far that he... Uh Uh-oh. He was in the land of the Philistines, their long-term enemy. He told himself not to panic. He only cracked their champion's head like a walnut before sawing it off. That was like... uh, 15 years ago, he assured himself. It was all good. Besides, he had even been hiding in their cities a little bit way back when. It, it would be okay. He saw some smoke coming out of a cave, and King David walked up. Knock, knock. Hey there, neighbor. He was just wondering if someone could point him in the direction of the Israelite kingdoms. He had lost his way hunting a deer that might have been Satan. David squinted. Toward the back of the cave, three people were huddled around a fire. The Israelites? One person asked. Yeah, David said. Not to brag, but I'm kind of their king, so I can pay you if you need it. And he looked around, seeing only crude tools, a heap of straw for a bed, and an olive press. He guessed they needed it. The king. King David? The person grumbled. Yep, the very same. Now, if the person didn't mind, which direction were his kingdoms? The three people standing by the fire rose to reveal that they weren't three people huddled together, but one giant crouched low to the ground. The giant turned, and David said, You know, you look familiar. Do I look like my brother? The giant asked, lumbering across the cave. 
Do you have like a drawing of him or something? How would I know what your brother looks like? David asked and then trailed off. Oh, wait. The giant was already lifting up its olive press and David had enough time to plant his foot and start to dive out of the way when the olive press came down on him, killing him instantly. Or so the giant thought. The good news was that the dirt beneath David had literally miraculously softened at the last minute, becoming spongy, so David wasn't killed by the press and could also breathe. The downside was that that was the extent of the miracle. David was now trapped in the dirt beneath the olive press, and the giant, the brother of Goliath, the one that David slew, was, according to the story, standing on it and dancing. I don't know. He left here going after a deer. You know, the one with the horns. David's top general, Abishai ben Zeruya, told the wise men. Antlers, the wise men corrected. The horns on deer were called antlers. Nah, these looked... devilly, Abishai noted. Well, if you're really worried, you could, you know, take a look at the mirror, the wise men replied. Oh, no one's supposed to touch the mirror, Abishai barked. The men shook back. Abishai apologized. It's just, sorry, David was super clear about that. The wise men threw up their hands. Okay, whatever, don't touch the mirror then. Abishai said that there were some other things that made him think David was in trouble though. Like, when he washed his hands earlier today, blood came off of them? Is that normal? The wise men asked if there was blood on his hands because that could have been a reason why. Abishai shook his head. No, that was the weird thing. Also, there's that bird right there. He pointed to the window. Outside, a dove was plucking its own feathers, screeching and beating itself with its own wings. The men watched in horrified silence until the wise men agreed. Yeah, that feels like a sign. He, he should look in the mirror. Real quickly, King David, according to legend, had a magical mirror, which he could see anyone or anything. I can't seem to find out where he got the mirror. Angels seem like a safe guess, so let's say it's angels. Probably because of the massive privacy concerns, only David was allowed to look in the mirror. Until now. The wise men crowded around, and they all saw the olive press with a hand sticking out from under it. But the hand was moving. David was somehow still alive. It was a miracle. Then, they moved the mirror, so it was kind of like a cool augmented reality deal. The ground shook as the giant, the brother to Goliath, stood over the olive press, laughing maniacally. Well, it looks like they knew the perpetrator. The wise men said that Abishai had wanted to look in the mirror. Now he needed to fix it. Abishai steeled himself. All right, he would do it. He would save the king or die trying. Orpah sat outside her son's place. She had been called earlier this morning. It had been a hard few years, losing her boy Goliath. She always told him, go easy on the conquering, but he never listened. She wasn't thrilled about her other son dropping olive presses on kings, but 
she didn't want to be too critical and drive him away, though she was worried that he was starting down the same path as Goliath. Still, she would come and support him and celebrate him today because he apparently had killed their family's greatest enemy. Then she heard galloping. Someone was approaching. Orpa stood. Hi, but private property, please turn around. But Abishai didn't. He kept galloping forward on David's mare. Orpa said, uh, final warning. She would be forced to act and flick her knitting needle at him, which didn't sound like much, but she was a giant, so that thing was like a spear. Abishai kept galloping at her. All right, sorry about this, but you've been warned, she said, and flicked the knitting needle. It thudded into the dirt just in front of the man, like a spear. He leaned down from his horse as it galloped, wrenching the giant's knitting needle from the ground. Both Abishai and Orpa thought that that move was pretty cool. But it was the final thought that Orpa had before the knitting needle impaled her. I like to think that Abishai was nearly as surprised as Orpa that that actually worked. But he didn't have time to congratulate himself. The giant, who had lost his brother long ago and now his mother, came bounding out. He looked at his mother in horror and screwed up his face in rage. He would destroy this little guy. Then he looked at the olive press, with the arms sticking out from underneath. The giant grinned. He would kill David's friend with David's body. That would maybe approach the same level of traumatizing as losing your mother to a knitting needle. The giant lifted the olive press, pulled David from the ground, and shrieked when David said, uh... Hi? The giant glowered at David and, for a moment, wondered how the king was still alive. Did he learn from his brother's lesson and attack David instantly? He did not. Instead, he did the budding supervillain thing, where he planned an overly complicated, drawn-out death. Still gripping David's ankle, the giant took out his own spear and stuck it point up in the ground in front of him. Then tossed David right up in the air above the spear and smirked. His plan was that David would tumble down and impale himself on the spear, which maybe, I mean, I personally can't get a piece of popcorn in my mouth by throwing it up in the air, but, you know, maybe the giant knew he could do this. It seems like kind of a risky gambit if David's friend is galloping toward you, though, especially if that friend knows the ineffable name of God. Ineffable means not to be uttered, or too great to be uttered. And it's thought by some people of Jewish faith that you shouldn't or can't say God's true name. There's a lot more there that doesn't really relate to our story. Suffice to say, in our story at least, the name carries power, because Abishai said it. I don't know if, in our story, the word functioned as something of a magic word, or if Abishai was crying out to God in the most personal, attention-grabbing way possible saying that the king of the Israelites was about to die in a convoluted, overly long, Bond villain-esque way. Whatever it was, it worked. And David froze in midair. The giant was stunned. Abishai was in awe for only a moment, calling on God to like, please meet him halfway with David. There was still a murderous giant. David floated towards Abishai, and the man galloped until he snagged his king by the foot. David probably dropped down and rode behind the guy on the horse. Though it's kind of fun to think about Abishai pulling him along like a king balloon. Regardless, the giant, Goliath's brother, wasn't going to let him go. He picked up the olive press 
and bounded off in a run to throw it at the men. The only problem was, was that he was so eager to crush them under the olive press, again, that he forgot about the spear he planted point up. He noticed it and skirted around it at the last minute, but lost his footing, and the olive press he meant for his enemies ended up on him. On the way back, Balloon King David thanked Abishai and God for their faithfulness. The mirror of King David stayed with him, his son and on down the line. When the Israelites experienced hardship and were driven from their home, the mirror stayed safe. By the 16th century, everyone thought the mirror was lost to legend. Everyone, that is, except Rabbi Adam. But that will be right after this. Rabbi Adam was a good man. He had a long day of teaching, tending to the needs of his people, but to make the day even longer, he took out a mirror. The mirror. When David died, he passed the mirror on to his son, Solomon, who passed the mirror on and it traveled on down the line. Even when the Israelites were forced to flee their homeland, the mirror stayed safe. Over 2,000 years later, Rabbi Adam was its caretaker. It was a sacred duty, one that he didn't approach lightly. He would pull it out in the evening and, far from being a complete weirdo and spying on people without their consent or seeing if people were talking about him or seeing who left their house a mess, Rabbi Adam looked for people in trouble. People he could help. The rabbi took a look at the mirror and saw a man at the market. Then, behind him, it wasn't just that an arrow was coming for him, it was that the arrow coming for him turned a corner. The tip of the arrow exploded out of the man's chest, and he dropped down on his stall, dead. Rabbi Adam sighed and grabbed his coat. You see, the mirror had a power that it's possible even David hadn't known about, one that was discovered in the millennia since. It didn't only know what was happening, but what would happen. Like some sort of... 16th century rabbinical early edition, Adam could see who was in danger and how they would die a day beforehand. The rabbi told his helpers that he would be back in a few days. He was going to need to ride all night if he was going to make it in time to help this man. The merchant the one Rabbi Adam had seen in the mirror, stopped and pointed at Adam later on the next day. No, you, leave me alone. Uh, you're going to die in two hours, Rabbi Adam said, as he had said, counting down every hour for the previous two, when he surprised the man in the street. Stop saying that, it's creepy and I don't even know you, the merchant yelled. Rabbi Adam shrugged and walked away. You see, for all of Rabbi Adam's good intentions, he wasn't the best detective. He was persistent. You can give him that. And he really did care, enough to go to a different city and stop a man from being murdered. But he didn't have much of a plan, other than to walk up to the stranger and tell him he was going to die, which would either be mildly off-putting or freak you out. The stranger never asked what Rabbi Adam meant, and Rabbi Adam didn't tell him, how do you tell a stranger that 
you saw in your magic mirror that they're going to get shot by a magic arrow in a way that they'll believe you. The merchant's two buddies asked, uh, what was up with that guy? The merchant said he didn't know, but he'd been chasing that guy off all day. His friends replied that you, you sure you don't want to ask any follow-up questions of that guy? Like, maybe why he thought the merchant was going to die? The merchant rolled his eyes. Okay, okay, he would do it. Next time the guy came around, he would tackle the rabbi and demand answers. Their friend said that he didn't have to tackle the guy, but he did. The story tells us that the next time the rabbi came around, the merchant full-on tackled him, pinning him and demanding answers. Adam struggled free. The merchant didn't need to pin him, he could have just asked at any moment. I don't know how you convince someone that you saw a magic arrow coming for them when you looked in your magic mirror. And maybe Rabbi Adam didn't quite get that far, but he at least got the merchant to come back to his inn and take a look at the mirror himself. Before they went upstairs, Rabbi Adam stopped to talk to the innkeeper. How much did he make in a day, like if the inn was sold out? The man thought about it with food and drink, about 18 silver shekels, all told. The rabbi laid down a bag on the table before the man. There was 20 to close up for the day. The innkeeper counted out the coin, nodded to the rabbi, and barred the door. The rabbi inquired, was the room set up like he asked? The innkeeper said he just finished up. The rabbi smiled and thanked the man. And the merchant stood stunned as the rabbi passed him on the stairs. Why would you do that? Pay all that money, I mean, the merchant said when he entered the rabbi's room. It was a simple one, with a bed, a chair, and a bathtub, full and steaming. It's the right thing to do, the rabbi said nonchalantly. He beckoned the man to come and look in the mirror. He didn't understand what he was looking at. But all that money, the merchant said, still a little awestruck. The rabbi said, yeah, it's just money, please. They didn't have much time left, and the mirror kept showing him this couple. They were cute, like snuggling in each other's arms and such, but he didn't see how it related to murder. The man looked at the mirror and felt like he had been punched in the gut. That, that was his wife. She was with a well-known sorcerer in their city. Adam grimaced, ooh, and... Since she's showing up in connection with your future murder, the man nodded. She, yeah, she wanted him dead. That was a lot to take in. Adam winced. Yeah, sorry, bud. He knew this wasn't the easiest transition, but he needed the merchant to get naked. The merchant spun around. What? The rabbi gestured to the tub. Well, he guessed if the man didn't mind getting his clothes soaking, he could keep them on. Regardless, he needed to get into the tub. Now, both of them looked in the mirror. The sorcerer was picking up the bow and aiming it out the window. Rabbi Adam told the merchant that when the time came, he needed to duck down into the water. The rabbi would signal him when it was time to come back up. All right, he just shot, jump in, duck down, now. The merchant took a deep breath and his head dropped below the water. Moments later, an arrow shot through one of the walls, passed over the tub, and chipped through a window. The rabbi splashed in the tub, and the man gasped as he emerged. 
Hey, why are they trying to kill me? The merchant asked. While they were waiting for the arrow to return to the sorcerer, the rabbi said that he thought they wanted to be able to marry. The merchant nodded. Yeah, that's the thing. See, they obviously don't have a problem with cheating or sorcery. Why not just run away? Why go full-blown murder? The rabbi said that that was actually a good point. Oh, he didn't buy it. The sorcerer, that is. He's reloading with another magic arrow. Get down. The merchant submerged, and again, the arrow went through the wall, passing over the tub, and went out through the window. And another thing, the merchant said when he got the signal to come back up. The rabbi saw the future with the mirror, right? The arrow turning a corner and killing him? The rabbi said, yeah. They were both still waiting for the arrow to return to the sorcerer to see if it was good enough, if he would stop. The merchant was still parsing out how prophecy worked, but if the rabbi saw a future and then changed it, was it even really the future? Adam said that, honestly, he had no idea. You think about prophecies in the future and avoiding the future too much and you end up married to your own mom. Look, he pulled up the mirror. The sorcerer was reloading. Again, this man wasn't letting up. If he didn't get some proof that the merchant was dead, he would just keep trying with the arrow or worse. The rabbi had an idea. The third arrow arrived through the same hole in the wall, scratched the pinky finger of the merchant's left hand, and left covered in blood. The merchant emerged wincing. Ah, that was the worst. Then he thought about how the arrow was meant to make him dead and quickly reconsidered that phrase. Adam walked over with a bandage. Yeah, nothing hurts like a scrape. They looked at the mirror, to the arrow returning. The sorcerer pointed out the blood on the tip of the arrow. The pair began rejoicing at the merchant's death. Rabbi Adam's eyes widened. Wow, they were really rejoicing. Let's go ahead and switch that off. No one needs to see that. The merchant patted the rabbi on the back, thanking the man. He would be dead without the rabbi. Yeah, you still might be, Rabbi Adam informed him. You're not out of the woods yet. Like, for example, where were you going to go? Back home, the merchant said, but then added to stay with extended family, not with his wife. And how far away do they live from the sorcerer and your wife? About three blocks. Three blocks. Yeah, you're not finished yet. Here's what we're going to do. Rabbi Adam said. We'll see Rabbi Adam's grand plan, but that will, once again, be right after this. A few weeks later, the merchant was at his stand in the market. In his hometown, the sorcerer passed by, munching at an apple. He looked at the goods, shrugged, smiled to the purveyor, kept walking, then froze. The apple dropped from his hand. The sorcerer spun around. Uh, hi. Hi, the merchant smiled. Can I help you? you you're dead. I am? Oh no. Am I a ghost? Are you a ghost? Can I see dead people? Can you see dead people? Are we all ghosts? The merchant replied. Nah, he's just messing around. He knew he wasn't a ghost. But yeah, a fellow Jewish man, Rabbi Adam, helped him avoid the sorcerer's attacks. 
He thought he would be mad at seeing the sorcerer like that man was with his wife now, but he was kind of glad, you know? He didn't want to stay married to someone who didn't want to be with him and who was also having an affair with a sorcerer and using magic arrows to try to murder him. He, the sorcerer cut him off. Stop, stop talking. He didn't care about the merchant's personal growth. Rabbi Adam, this man who could thwart his powers, the sorcerer demanded him. Demanded him? The merchant asked. The sorcerer grew grim. Yes, demanded. You will bring Rabbi Adam to me, delivering him into my power. Okay, the merchant replied. Do not test me, merchant. I demand the rabbi. Yeah, I said, okay, I'll bring him, the merchant replied. The sorcerer paused. Wait, really? It's people usually protest or something, the sorcerer noted. The merchant said, yeah, the rabbi said the sorcerer would say something cliched and hacky like that. And the rabbi said to convey the message that he would be happy to come. Just write down your address. The sorcerer did. Oh, okay, just cool. Tell him to come by tonight to, uh, to, to meet his doom. Okay, the merchant asked if the rabbi should bring anything, wine. The sorcerer said, nah, he's got everything. Just, just bring himself, you know, to die. Rabbi Adam had gone expecting a magical test of wills, maybe to the death. What he hadn't expected were all the nobles. He opened the door to a fancy soiree. The sorcerer and his wife, so formerly the merchant's wife, were hosting all the nobles in town. As soon as they spotted Rabbi Adam, the mood in the room changed. We don't need to go super far into it, but this was the nobility of a Western European city in the Middle Ages. That a murderous sorcerer was held in higher esteem by the nobles than a selfless rabbi should tell you all you need to know about the nobles. Anti-Semitism, the merchant whispered into the rabbi's ear. He, he nodded at the man. He, he understood the subtext of what was going on here. The nobles had started the party early, too. One of them yelled out that the rabbi was here. Magic fight! Another pointed to Rabbi Adam, telling him to perform his wonders, show them his powers. Rabbi Adam corrected them, saying that he performed wonders, but his power came from trust in the Lord, who had never failed him. The loaded nobles, who were looking for something more akin to how boxers talk to each other before a prize fight, shrugged it off. Weak. All right. Magic off. Go. The sorcerer produced a bowl from inside his robe. Pass it around. Get a feel. No hidden compartments, just a normal bowl. The nobles, who were a little drunk for the level of focus required to hold a bowl, nodded. Cool, yep, okay, bowl. Uh, was the awesome Harry Potter wand battle gonna be later, or... When the bowl made it back to the sorcerer, he waved his staff over it, and boom. Water now filled the bowl. He passed it around the room full of nobles. Check that out. They said, oh, oh cool, a bowl full of water. The type of magic you can only get from sorcery or a well. At the end of the demonstration, Rabbi Adam gestured for them to pass the bowl to him. Watch this. He said a quick prayer 
and then the bowl was empty. The men shrugged. Cool, they guessed. Then he waved his hands over it again, and it was full not of water, but wine. What? The first noble said, taking a sip. This was good stuff. This guy, this guy's all right. They all passed around the wine, and the sorcerer seethed. Shouldn't have led with water. All right, all right. He got everyone's attention, holding up his hands. He had this dove. He pulled a dove from his coat. The guys were like, was that there the whole time? The sorcerer made sure everyone could see that it was still alive. And then he tapped it on the head with his staff, but not a hard tap, not enough to kill it. But it died. He magicked it to death. It dropped to the floor, feet up in the air, stiff, and it didn't move. The sorcerer went over it, waved his staff again, and the bird flapped back to life. Yeah, check that out. Rabbi Adam better bring it next time. Rabbi Adam did. He did the same trick the sorcerer did, but his bird, when it came back, flew around the room, sat down, laid an egg, and before anyone realized, a second, smaller bird broke free from the egg, flapping around the room. The nobles agreed on two things. The sorcerer's version could be explained by just like a well-trained bird. But the rabbi, that was something else. And two, baby animals were adorable, the rabbi wins. The sorcerer said that the rabbi was cheating, watching him work so that he could one-up the sorcerer. He demanded that, for his third and final demonstration, the rabbi be out of the room so he doesn't witness it. The rabbi said he wasn't copying. This was all from God, so that absolutely wasn't a problem. He and the merchant left the room. While he was out, the sorcerer planted his staff in the center of the room. Literally, his staff sprouted roots, which crept down, cracking the floorboards and finding dirt below the foundation. It grew branches and leaves. It grew fruit. When the sorcerer was finished, the tree was in bloom in the middle of his house. The sorcerer smiled at his guests and then caught his breath and leaned against the wall. He called the rabbi back in, pointing to the tree commanding the man to turn the tree back into his staff. The rabbi agreed, but said that, in the same way that he had to leave the room, the sorcerer had to leave and go wait in the hall. When he was gone, the rabbi walked around the tree seven times, inspecting the fruit. He looked to the top of the tree and smiled. He called the chief among the nobles in the city and pointed out the fruit. Would he take a knife and cut down that fruit? The noble grasped the knife, took hold of the fruit, and cut it free. He handed it to the rabbi as the tree began to wither. The leaves began to fall, and soon the staff was just a staff. Please invite the sorcerer back in the room, the rabbi said with a grin. The rabbi waited and heard what he was expecting. The nobles screaming, what had happened? What had happened was the sorcerer's head had popped clean off, popped like a champagne cork, and just ricocheted down the hall. The rabbi said that, as you can see, when you use sorcery, you invest a piece of yourself into the magic. If you put too much of yourself into a spell, you might find yourself vulnerable. In fact, it was kind of like, kind of works as a metaphor for creative work, and, uh, hi, everybody. The nobles gathered around the rabbi and merchant. You, you killed him. Rabbi Adam said, couple things. First, the sorcerer did this to himself as part of his spell, and if we're really pointing fingers here, technically the most senior noble cut the apple from the tree, so the other nobles shook their heads. He killed a citizen of their city, but 
the most senior noble spoke up. I mean, technically, he only did what the sorcerer asked him to do by turning the tree back into the staff. Because when your boss thinks something is a great idea, you think something is a great idea. All the nobles in attendance agreed that he was super smart with his excellent idea and they should all get promotions. They patted the rabbi on the back and he left the sorcerer's home. Outside, the merchant embraced him. Rabbi Adam didn't need to do any of that. Now the merchant was safe and it was all thanks to him. All thanks to God, the rabbi corrected with a smile. The merchant nodded. Yeah, yes, of course. Oh man, also his wife was now single. He was going to divorce her so hard. He hoped she went the same way as her boyfriend. Rabbi Adam said, sure, divorce her, but keep in mind that the Lord doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but that they return to the ways of righteousness and repent. The merchant sat with those words, and while he and his wife did get a divorce, I've never had someone cheat on me and then try to kill me with magic, but I imagine that would be hard to come back from. The merchant did forgive her, and she did repent of what she had been complicit in and returned to her community. Rabbi Adam returned to his people and safeguarded the mirror until he was able to pass it on to another. And some say the mirror is still out there, existing to this day. That's it for the main story this time. Next week, we'll be in Japanese folklore, telling three stories of love gone wrong that are bizarre, funny, and tragic. If you're looking for other stuff to listen to, there is a new episode of Scoundrel out. Scoundrel, of course, being our new podcast with Cast Media, where we tell the stories behind history's forgotten villains. This time, we tell the story of George Remus, a powerful tale of passion, injustice, and how if you give someone power of attorney over your bootlegging empire, maybe be nice to them. You can find Scoundrel by searching for Scoundrel wherever you get your podcasts or by following the link in the show notes. The creature this week is the Kukudu from Albanian mythology. The Kukudu is a zombie, a revenant, someone who returns from the dead because there are kids squatting in their old house. Not cool. When a miser dies, a person who doesn't like to spend money, it's said that their house is cursed because all that money they left behind and that they just can't seem to let it go. So it's up to a brave boy to stay the night in the house, defeat the ghost who's probably confused as to why there's a brave boy in their house, and then he gets to keep all the miser's hard-won and obsessively squirreled away gold. Yes, the best way to help someone move on from something is to just attack them relentlessly until they run away. What does the kukudu look like? Well, that varies based on different regions. Apparently one version is a stocky, short-legged man with seven goat tails. Far from being a confused, dead miser, this guy is just mean. He does evil stuff, and it's said that he's completely invulnerable to physical damage, except being strangled with a grapevine, which is actually a form of physical damage. The third is a version of the zombie that spreads plague, which kind of feels like all zombies. This one travels around breathing on people and giving them cholera. It also has an absolutely horrifying origin story involving Alexander the Great. I won't say it here because I don't want to do a disclaimer and it's just super dark, but I mentioned it in the post on the site. It's the first link in the show notes, so go check that out if you want to be grossed out. One final definition I found for the kukudu 
is that they're the final form of the Dampir, a cool Albanian vampire we talked about a few months ago. So yeah, when it comes to being undead in Albania, either you die a vampire or you live long enough to see yourself become an angry zombie with seven goat tails. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. The theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>